Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Thanks for tuning in to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Steve Ray, your host, and this podcast features interviews with the people actually making a difference in the Italian wine market in America, their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. And I'll be adding a practical focus to the conversation based on my 30 years in the business. So if you're interested in not just learning how, but also how else, then this pod is for you. And welcome to this week's edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. This week, I'm pleased to have as my guest Kelly Ford, who uh, goes by the name of Kelly Sam in popular press uh, as a guest. And she's had a very interesting history of uh, becoming something significant in the wine industry, particularly in the Las Vegas market. But Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and can you give us a little bit of background on this? I mean, you're you're one of many people I think we all run into who have a passion for wine for whatever reason and at whatever point in life it takes over. You turned it into a career and you're still early in that. So give us a little background of how you got here today talking with me. Thank you. Well, I would say that it all started when I was a student at UNLV studying my undergrad for hotel restaurant management. The uh, I, I truly believe in you know, right place, right time. I was lucky to have two professors who were teaching uh, the wine courses there who were adjunct professors, one of them being Rob Bigelow and the other Darius Allen, who um, now, of course, are both master sommeliers. I had just recently turned 21, and it was because I had a chance to do some international internships leading up to that through the university that I understood the concept of a sense of place. And in the wine world, of course, that's important to really uh, to really anchoring your knowledge and understanding how to approach um, wines in the wine world. And of course, I wanted to be like my professors. They were eloquent experts in their field and relevant because they were also working in the field while teaching. I think that's, um, I find, because I do a lecture just once a year at Bologna and also at Cornell, that there is a, a difference between not a, nothing bad, and it's, it's not, but it's not insignificant from professors who take an academic approach and people who are in the industry who take a very practical approach. And I find that very rewarding talking to and working with students. But this interview is not about me. It's about you. So Rob Bigelow in particular, um, at one point in time, he was managing the Bellagio, which you had said was was the largest wine program in the world of any restaurant. I've been there. Wonderful place. Everybody's watched the fountains, eaten at a number of the restaurants and had fabulous wines there. But tell me the inside story. Absolutely. So... <laughs> You know, uh, going back to the right place at the right time, I had expressed interest in working in the industry after I completed my wine courses at UNLV. And I was still a student, a junior at the time. And their answer to that was, 
you know, okay, um, you, we really need a TA. So I did that for, you know, six months and, you know, helped quiz grade all their tests. But as everyone's career moved along and the win was opening up, the wine director and a lot of the wine talent was poached because Steve Wynn, of course, opened up. He not only built Bellagio, but opened it up. A lot of those food and beverage employees were loyal to him. So a lot of them moved on over to the project that was, you know, being developed and designed in the, you know, mid 2000s, like early to mid 2000s. Subsequently, my professor, Rob Bigelow, was hired on as the wine director. And at the time, he was only the second wine director the property had ever seen. And um, it was still, because when wasn't open yet, it was still the biggest wine program in the world. They sold $40 million worth of wine a year. And of course, we know now there's bigger programs than that. But at the time, it was the biggest in the world. And the win also had tried to hire the wine manager away. And so he needed to replace that role. So he called me. I had already, you know, you know, I hadn't been in class or his or the TA for probably eight months at that point, but he asked if I wanted to have lunch at Churco Lakeside, looking at the Bellagios. I remember it was the middle of a day. I was in between going to classes. And he asked if I was interested in taking the wine manager job. And of course, as flattered as I was, I, my brain response to him was, am I qualified? And he was like, he used to call me Ford. He said, Ford, trust me. You're qualified. Like, you know how to do this job. You're qualified. Don't overthink it. And so, of course, I said yes. So I understand that you were a student at the Court of Master Psalms and you're a level two graduate now. That gives you a certain amount of street cred um, and documents, I think, the level of knowledge that you have. For anyone who uh, has not watched Psalm, the movie or the series, I urge you to watch it. It'll give you a sense of what that's all about. But let's focus a little bit on Las Vegas as a market. Um, Las Vegas is really unique in a lot of different ways. And rather than me go over the list, I'm going to turn it over to you and say, what makes Las Vegas unique and how do you work in it? So Las Vegas is often described from the outsiders looking in, and I agree with this, as as the Super Bowl in food and beverage, but it's the Super Bowl several times a year. And it's because we do high volume well by the nature of the city. And uh, we also, we do... uh, High volume, low cost wines very well. We also do trophy wines really well. And trophy wines being all the first gross, DRC in any shape or form, especially, you know, for um, any of VIP guests at any of the casinos who have, you know, any sort of players program. And so Dom and Sasakaya and Hornalaya uh, <laughs> and all that. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Dom, Sasakaya, all the allocated, all of the wines that are typically allocated are just common in any major program. And of course, we have a lot of grand award winning programs. I haven't actually seen any of those updated, updated, you know, grand award programs that have been maintained since, you know, of course, COVID. So I don't know where that stands as of 2022. But historically, we've had, you know, we do, we do trophy wines well, we do any sort of big elaborate event well. But with that being said, is the talent that is involved in selling those wines on the floor or for a supplier or a distributor, I would say we're a group of about 200 people. So we know each other very well, definitely as if we all lived in a small town, although it's a city of, you know, almost, I think it might be close to 3 million now. And we often, as the food and beverage industry does, 
there's a lot of movement and a lot of changes and you change roles, you, you know, switch companies. That's very common in our town. And it's, um, it's common in the industry, but it's very common in Las Vegas. Okay, but let's get into the particulars. Nevada is a, a franchise market. Las Vegas is a franchise city, effectively. Tell me what that means and what impact that has on the wine business in this market. And thinking about people, many of the people who listen to our show are in the trade, but uh, familiar with the export side of the business, or we would call it import, but yeah. So to be franchised, you have to sell 2,000 cases. At any time. It doesn't have to be, it's 2,000 cases ever since the history of the brand was registered in the state of Nevada. As a distributor has to sell. A distributor has to sell, correct. 2,000 cases. Correct. Okay. And so what you often see here is a lot of horse trading in the brand. You know, the, if, if you, you know, talk about wine as a commodity and we'll take, for example, I'll take a very specific example. So we know that Constellation is like a larger supplier, but they at one point acquired High West. So High West, before it was acquired by Constellation, had been distributed by a mid-sized distributor here who took them on into the market and did a good job with them. And, you know, that was at Vin Sauvage. And so once they franchised High West, it got to stay in that distributor house, although the brand is mostly with one of the bigger houses. That's the brand, but the portfolio of you know, Constellation is within one of the larger houses. So that would be a very specific example, um, albeit in the spirits world, of something that normally would be all under one roof if it was in another state. It would have just been moved. Okay. But what is the concept of a franchise state? Can you simplify that? So the franchise state basically means that whoever takes on, you know, any particular producer is that if they do a good job with it and grow the brand, they get to keep and maintain the rights to distribute that brand. And like we mentioned that we do high volume well, if you can get a casino floor pour in a very busy, you know, casino, you can franchise a good wine that maybe costs 15, 16, $17 in a year or two, if you keep that placement. So like, for example, Cosmopolitan could bring in you know, we'll take Cosmopolitan because it's a hip, it's a hip, you know, place right next to Bellagio. It's very busy as well. They have a good, great restaurant collection and a lot of great F&B talent in that building. So they have not just one lounge, but they have about um, six lounges throughout the property that typically will utilize similar product just to be effective from a cost and buying perspective. So if you get their um, sparkling, you know, rosé pour, you know, $18 to the guest, legitimate, high quality, you know, classic representation of, of like a Cremant category. Um, they could order upwards of 100 cases a month because in those buildings, sometimes you get unexpected big parties booked. And what ends up happening is not only will that product be poured in a lounge, but if banquets is in a pinch and they don't know what to offer a guest who maybe books last minute or decides very last minute that they want a beverage package, they often will lean into those SKUs that are also in the core pro program out of the warehouse. So, so already authorized to be sold by the property, not necessarily mandatory. Yes, not mandatory. It's chosen, you know, often for the right reasons. They're blessed. Got lucky. Just like I got lucky, right? You know, getting professors that got me a job at Bellagio, that's the same kind of luck that producers can have in their selection when it comes to wine. 
but you can't count on it. That's luck. Right. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to get into that with individual producers, but let me go back to, for a moment, franchise state. My definition of it is a state where once you hire a particular distributor, it is very difficult or darn near impossible to take the brand away from them. So it changes the dynamics of how the distribution system is set, not system, of who the distributors are in any given market because of this kind of legacy deal. So you find a lot more variety in distributors beyond just the top one or two that you find in most other, I would call them normal states uh, versus Las Vegas. But moving that to the next kind of concept is you got Las Vegas and the strip and on-premise and the prices and everything. I was just there a couple of weeks ago and I was paying $24 for a cocktail and, you know, $78 just for a steak. Forget about the cream spinach and the mushrooms, right? Just the steak was 78 It was outrageous. Two blocks away, they may have something where you can get a $12.99 steak, yes. right? A complete menu. So the strip is very different. It's also very uh, visible, it serves a lot of people who are unfamiliar with wines as well as those that are. It's a great opportunity for exposure. My question to you is, how valuable is this is being sold on the Strip to a brand from Italy that may not be widely known, not Sassacaya, but maybe a Grillo from Sicily or, you know, uh, keeping with the G's, Grignolino from Piemonte? I think that it's valuable. It's valuable in the sense that customers, you still see the bottle, they still get to taste the wine, and it's valuable that the wine professionals that get familiar by working with that product, and maybe a product that they choose to work with for the remainder of their career, as long as, of course, you know, they work in a market that has access to that product. I think, I think that means a lot. I, early, especially early on in sommelier's careers, I think if they have classic expressions, and they form relationships with those wines and wineries and suppliers, I do think those are, could be valuable throughout the rest of your career. So from my perspective, when I, I deal with a lot of consortia from Italy. I, I think that should be a target for the consortia because it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to present a region as a place and not necessarily promote any one individual wine from that. How you do that is a whole nother thing, and maybe that would be another interview. But let's let's go back to Las Vegas as a market. So you got the Strip, then you got the rest of the city, you know, Henderson and people who actually live in Las Vegas and, you know, go out to restaurants and all that. And how is that different from the Strip? And how do you deal with that on the trade side? You know, I think there's, for professionals, we fall into two camps. There are professionals that are hyperactive in our industry where their time being out and about doesn't end when they're done with work. <laughs> Are you enjoying this podcast? There is so much more high quality wine content available from Mama Jumbo Shrimp. Check out our new wine study maps, our books on Italian wine, including Italian Wine Unplugged, The Jumbo Shrimp Guide to Italian Wine, Sangiovese Lambrusco and Other Stories, and much, much more on our website, MamaJumboShrimp.com. Now back to the show. So there's definitely professionals who, you know, when they are not doing their job that they're being paid for, are still so connected and so active in our industry, you know, after work. And it's not always like, you know, partying. It's just after work, going to grab food, going to grab, you know, a drink or a glass of wine at an industry bar that's industry owned or going to support, you know, these 
this talent that we're all really, you know, that we care about that has opened up restaurants off of the strip where they could still be working on the strip. They could definitely still be, you know, relevant from a corporate standpoint, but they have decided to step away. And there's a tremendous amount of talent who's done that. And it's, it's a gamble, but for a lot of them, it's paying off. So those who are hyperactive and hyper-involved in an industry do that in their free time. And, um, and this is often three or four in the morning, right? Yes. Yes. And then, you know, wake up and do it all over again. Um, I do think that, you know, that's definitely for those who are probably in their first two decades in their career at, at some point. I'm not saying that yeah. pe- people who are in their fifties aren't doing that, Yeah, right. but it's a little harder to, to maintain that sort of energy in the industry. And then if you're, you know, if you're more, if you kind of draw that line in the sand when you're at work, you know, you're at work, there is definitely, you know, that industry professional who they're home with their family, you know, with their kids who don't, um, who choose to turn down trade lunches because it cuts into their family time. And because I have been so lucky to work on so many different sides of this industry, I, I remember that there were, you know, there are top buyers in the market who don't attend trade lunches, but they will come in 30 minutes before their shift start to taste with. So just, you know, identifying, depending on what you're doing in the industry at the time and what your objective is, identifying how people interact with a product, you know, is... I've I've always been a believer, and a lot of my sales guys have told me this, that, you know, if you're lucky enough to not only just find these places where the industry gathered, but to belong to it, like fit in, not just show up, it becomes a very effective way of getting involved into the trade side of the business in that city. It's also a commitment, as you said, it's not for everybody, but for some people and brands, that becomes a strategy. So take that that idea and let's think about a uh, Nero Davila from Sicily or a Primitivo from Puglia or a Lambrusco, you know, from central Italy. Lambrusco as in real Lambrusco, not the stuff that we drink here in the United States, the super sweet Spumante stuff. Do those brands belong on the Strip? Is that a place where they can develop their brand identity in the U.S.? Yes. And I'll explain what the approach has to be to succeed is in our market on the Strip, there are license holders who have to pull their wines from the warehouse, you know, from a large casino inventory. And then there's those who are independent license holders. For what you're asking about new producers who want to break into the market, who have a great product, who are taken on by a distributor, of course, who get that representation, they can absolutely gain traction. It's going to take a while. But those independent license holders, for example, at the Venetian, there's plenty of them dotted with independent license. There's a few inside the win. And I and not to get overly specific, but there are those those restaurants that, that, you know, the out from the outside looking in, you would never know the difference. But if they have an independent license, yes, they can buy direct. Yeah, I, I saw that loud and clear. I was there a couple of weeks ago and I stayed at the Venetian and went to a bunch of the restaurants and I was just amazed at the eclectic range of products that were there to be discovered. And that's where the joy comes from, because somebody like you is is qualifying those wines and saying, no, well, let's take this one, not that one, because this one's one that's going to make everybody go, wow, you know, for whatever reason. Tell me about the distribution scene in in Las Vegas. As I said, as a franchise state, or as we both said, as a franchise state, it means that the lineup is a little bit different. Who are the major players and who are the uh, kind of middle range players 
uh, that matter in Las Vegas? So we'll start definitely with the major players. So ever since I entered the industry in the early 2000s, the major players were, you know, Southern Wine and Spirits, of course, now Southern Glaciers. Johnson's, Johnson Brothers have always been very active and, you know, had a big presence in the industry. And then, of course, um, Breakthrough Beverage. And Breakthrough Beverage has undergone several ownership changes. Right. It was, I mean, when it was Wurtz, it was kind of dominated, right? I mean, before it was DeLuca, it was something else too. But in my lifetime, it was DeLuca, Wurtz, Breakthrough. Okay. All right. Different lifetimes. I get that. Okay. I know. And I know, I, you know, I can't, who knows? I, I, you know, maybe 20 years from now, I'll look back at this and think, wow, you know, so much still to learn. But those are the... You will, but let's not do it now. <laughs> I shouldn't do it either. Go ahead. So those are the three large houses. and. Within those large houses, prior to the pandemic, specifically Southern and Breakthrough, there were divisions that were dedicated to small fine wine that you know were esoteric niche. They supported that that part of the business. That has changed since the pandemic, and they do on some level still support that, but it's um, it's less than it used to be. And then the mid the mid range are like a mid sized distributor, and it took them two decades to get there is Vin Sauvage. Vin Sauvage has really positioned itself in the market to be that mid, mid-range distributor, but it started small and of course fought its way to do that. And um, they have an excellent portfolio and the industry is is very fond of them as a house and they do a good job at where, where they service the market. Then under um, like the small guys, which the market needs, you know, the market needs everybody. It needs the big guys, middle guys, small guys. So newest to the market is Alt Imports. They specialize in low intervention and should you say natural wine, but our market responds better to low intervention. They have the Ginny and Francois portfolio, Zevroven, um, a handful of others. Then there's Red Rock, who is recently merging with Cork, and they're you know two small distributors coming together. I can speak more about Red Rock. Allen, who's the who's the owner. He didn't come from a wine background. He came from a music background and he did an excellent job of building like a lot of handful of small domestic producers from California and uh, some imports too. But he, man, he's been fighting his way the whole time, you know, to, to earn every placement. But it sounds like curated brands, the ones that he's discovered. Kind of like Skernick is for, you know, Austrian wines, grower champagnes, German wines, and so forth. Yes, yes. And so, you know, he serves a, a very important function in the market. And that's, you know, of course, as we speak, changing with that merger. Then there's Bud Break, also very similar. One, one man show, and J.D. Collins is his name. And he um, also very curated. He's very deliberate with his selections. And, you know, I think he's going to keep on doing what he does. And there's buyers who, who want what he has, you know, just like, you know, just like every market has their rebels. There are plenty of rebel, rebel buyers in this market who want to go against the grain and, you know. Now that's kind of like the story for many of the celebrity restaurant chefs. And that's how they, how they got there by being, you know, bold and, and um, innovative and, and creative. One of the other people that's in the market that I want to talk about happens to be a friend of mine, Henry DeVar. And, and Henry has been around the Las Vegas market for a while. He also teaches the VIA, in Italy International Academy course. I saw him in New York two weeks ago, I think it was. And I've been really impressed by his knowledge, particularly of Italian wines, and him as being an advocate of 
undiscovered Italian wines in the what, 650 different indigenous varietals that are out there. He was the one who recommended that I contact you for this interview, which I appreciate. Uh, tell me about your connection with Henry and, and how that all happened. We adore Henry. Henry's, of course, we can't say enough wonderful things about him. He's an amazing human being, and he deeply cares about, of course, as you can tell, our industry and and getting the voice out about producers that should be heard. So Henry, I met Henry in oh, 2007, shortly after I passed my certified exam with the Court of Master Sommeliers. And he had just moved from New York to Las Vegas with Batali Group and was at the helm of you know, creating a very, very dynamic program. And honestly, at the time, like the talk of the town, as far as the program went, it was, you know, he wanted to maintain that standard that was the selection coming from New York, which is very difficult to do coming to a market like Las Vegas. And, you know, if Henry ever has the opportunity and chooses to, it's more not not so much of the opportunity. If Henry ever decides to be a buyer again in the city, I can't wait to see what he does because he was excellent at creating a program that was the talk of the town. Everybody loved it. And it was different. I saw the, the yeah, and I, I saw the passion in, in him teaching the the via course. It really is something. I, I think I know a lot about Italian wines, and I realized how little I know when I talked to him. Okay, so um, moving on to Kelly Sam, your business. Tell us about what services you offer, what you do. How do you make money these days? Professionally, definitely very busy. I have a very understanding husband, which is great. Um, Who's also in the business. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. He works for William Grant and Sons. And so I decided to. Do you guys ever have dinner together? You know, Sunday, Sunday <laughs> is like our family. Sunday is our family day. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, like sometimes I'll join him at his events, and you know, we juggle, we get, sure. we juggle, just like who, you know, who doesn't do that, right? <laughs> it's fun. I I think it's great. But anyway, okay. So Kelly song. Kelly song. So after uh, the well, you know, I say after actually, you know, during the pandemic, when a lot of us, you know. A lot of us, almost everybody, honestly, like in our industry here in Las Vegas, were on furlough. And a lot of us, you know, kind of saw the writing on the wall that we were going to be permanently separated from um, the positions that we had all had. We used to call that fired, but yeah, okay, permanently separated. Okay. Yeah, it's so we- it's weird because like you associate, <laughs> I know, without going down the rabbit hole of that, is you always think you have to do something wrong to get separated. And we all... Yeah, right, 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 right. There's still a stigma that attaches to it. But hey, there was this thing called COVID. Okay, but go on, keep going. Yeah. I know, I know. We, we At some level, all of us in, in, in the industry probably need to like go see a therapist about it. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, because of the three-tier system, you can't be working in the industry that if you want to be a license holder, you know, you can't be working in the industry as a seller, you know, as a buyer. So I, for over a decade had had, I had wanted to own my own business and I could never figure out quite when or how to do it. And so when um, we were separated from our employer, um, for me, it was breakthrough beverage. I sat back and it only took me a couple of weeks to decide that I was going to take my savings and go for it because there was somebody who I also admire who has a similar um, e-commerce concept up in Washington. It's called Crunchy Red Fruit. And I met Jackson on a trip and he had quit his industry job pre-COVID to start an e-commerce you know, store, but based out of Washington. And I thought to myself, I don't want to be behind a brick and mortar for 12 hours a day. You know, I'm, I'm a mother now, a two-year-old, and that wasn't what I wanted. But I knew that 
the future, and I still feel the same, is e-commerce. Our industry is is headed that way. There's no stopping that train. It's either getting on the train or resisting it, but that train's still going. And I was like, you know what? This license doesn't exist in Nevada. I wanted to understand why. I wanted to understand and do my best to try to get a license for e-commerce to be approved. And after a lot of counseling and some legal counseling, of course, to guide me through the ins and outs of what areas of Las Vegas were open to that type of license. I ended up in North Las Vegas nine months later after start from the day that I decided to take my savings to do it and knew that on paper I could do it. I needed to look a certain way. And that's the tricky part about, of course, opening a business in our industry is there was a window in time that I needed to do it. And I'm grateful that I was able to accomplish it. Nine months later. Good for you for recognizing that window. A lot of people were, you know, were wondering what happened. They're still wondering what happened, but keep going. Sorry. Nine months later, I had uh, a commercial space that I was required to to have to, to get the license approved. And it's a warehouse that's zoned the way that the county wants to see. And then I knew immediately Nevada would be my target audience. And Wyoming, where I'm from, is definitely underserved. From a wine perspective, um, they're a control state. I know a whole other conversation about that could happen. And I wanted to open up rural parts of the U.S. And I'm not saying they can't order wine online already, but I think a lot of people who are just everyday type of, you know, people I grew up with who don't know our industry, they don't understand all the layers that are why they don't have access to wine that you do in another state. And they just accept it as that's the way it is. I can't get that one, which is like wrong, right? I know, I know. And, you know, I don't blame wineries for not wanting to be registered in all 50 states. They have to pick and choose what fees they want to pay and where the people are. And so in these less populated states, anyways, so I, I wanted to start my own business, focus on that market. Simultaneously, I was really concerned that the producers that I used to love selling that I used to love working with maybe go away in the state of Nevada. Come fast forward to today and things aren't looking as dire as I thought they would. And that's great. I buy producers that I want to support, that I want to drink. That is a criteria. If I won't drink it, it's not there. It's not on the site. And I want to offer them, of course, at fair prices. And of course, they have to be niche because the reality of the situation is, is I can't compete with wine.com, you know, on certain, on certain brands. But I also know that they're going after a different audience than I am. They're selling different product than I am. And your focus is low intervention wine. And it is. AKA natural wine or clean wine for. <laughs> and there is an important part of, of also my motivation for starting Kelly Som is that I realized that for the first time in a long time, I had to go out and buy wine like a normal consumer. And I had a hard time finding the wines that I wanted to drink to pay for with my own money. And, and, and you know what you're looking for, right? Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that's often. So uh, w- what is the leading wine that you got, that you carry? Is it, um, I'm trying to remember, Josco, uh, oh, Grovner. Is it Grovner by any chance? Or they play a role or no? Um, I would love for Grovner to play a role. Um, Grovner is it's is available in our market, but it's we don't get a lot of it. So I actually haven't picked up Grovner yet, believe it or not. It, I believe it's still with Southern Wine and Spirits. That's the house that carries it. I, I don't want to get in the middle of that relationship. <laughs> Let's get back to, to what we were talking about. 
So uh, the site is kellysom, K-E-L-L-Y-S-O-M-M.com. Mm-hmm. And it's basically an e-commerce site, kind of sort of like a club. Is that how I'm reading it? So I do both. Initially, I thought it would just be a club where people trust me to build their box. But I quickly realized that not everyone is that hands-off. And there are people who want to pick their own wine. And I get it. Like Different personality types want to approach purchasing in different ways. So what I decided to do is after a few months of being operational, I took the inventory that I had on hand for those club subscribers and started listing that leftover inventory by the bottle. And so that's how I developed the bottle shop, which now is just as popular as the membership. Awesome. Well, I'm a big fan of e-commerce and I've I've been a proponent, I think, on the cutting edge of helping to create opportunities for, I call it e-commerce as opposed to DTC, because I think DTC, in most people in the industry, their minds think of domestic direct-to-consumer brands, where e-commerce and imported brands is a whole different challenge and, and opportunity. But at the end of the day, that it, it all you know circles around. There's so many wines that we've had the luxury, the opportunity to taste that you want to share with other people and simply are just inaccessible to them. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that. I I applaud what you're doing and I appreciate what you're doing. So it's kellysom.com. So we're kind of running out of time here. We could talk forever. And um, I hope the next time in Las Vegas, we'll get together and have one of those $78 steaks and $24 (laughs) cocktails. I look forward to it. Or maybe we'll go off the strip someplace else. Anyway, what's the big takeaway from our interview? I like to ask this question. You know, if somebody's listening to it, most of the people are in the trade. You know, what, what can they do as a result of what we've just talked about that they can put into play immediately to better their situation? Buy cheaper, sell more, uh, uh, make more money, expand their offer, whatever it happens to be. You know, understanding the fundamentals of our industry can never hurt anybody um, as far as when I say the fundamentals. There are people who who are better exam takers than I will ever be who can quiz you on everything in the wine world, which that that skill is very important. But the fundamentals of our industry and the three-tier system and really figuring out what you care about and how to work with not only the organizations in the three-tier system, but the people that you want to work with is the most important because if you don't have strong relationships, it's going to be hard for you to get the product that you want to work with. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know it's not about, it's not about the wine that, that that's important, but not in the beginning. In the beginning, it's a relationship. And, and are you one of us? And do you belong as part of us? That's why I wrote the book. Hey, it's a commercial for me, how to get US market ready. You can buy it from vanitaly.it or, or Amazon. But the idea is it's a primer for anybody wanting to get in the in- industry so that they sound like they know what they're doing. It's it's an education that makes it a lot easier. It's frankly, it's frustrating to me. I'm talking with some people this week who have the book, haven't read it, and now I gotta do all the education on the- I shouldn't have to do that. Maybe I should call Henry. I know Henry's amazing. <laughs> I know. And I know you said if there's one takeaway, the second takeaway is that. I do believe that our industry is is moving digital thanks to COVID faster than ever. So e-commerce. For sure. Um, okay. I want a big shout out to Kelly Ford for participating today. Kelly, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. I thought it was a fascinating interview and in particularly learning a, a very different perspective than what I have seen, which was kind of more from the importer producer side of the equation rather than the distributor. And I've always felt that, you know, marketing 
people are over here and salespeople are over there. And there's like this big gap between them. And, and even in terms of language that they use and understandings that they have. And I think what you're talking about is bridging that. The um, e-commerce site that she's starting is uh, Kelly Sun. Check it out for natural wines. And uh, I'm sure there's more to come. And how can people reach out to you if they wanted to uh, talk to you or sell their wines through you? I'd say email is the best. You know, it's open 24 hours a day. I'm uh, very responsive to any inquiries. So my email is info at kellysom.com. Info at kellysom.com, K-E-L-L-Y-S-O-M-M. And what are your social media handles? And are you active on any of them? I am. I'm active on Instagram. So I'm at kellysom, uh, K-E-L-L-Y-S-O-M-M. I think we got that covered now, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, so many times. So yeah, at Kelly Som on um, Instagram. And then I also, as far as people who want to like be the first to know if when I get new product, I also have, uh, when you visit the landing page, they can um, put their phone number in to be part of the SMS campaign. I think that is probably a better way than, in my opinion, than email subscribing, just because, you know, people check their phone all the time. So when I have new product or have something exciting. I, I think you're right. While we were talking, I just did the same thing and signed up for it. And I realized uh, when I was looking at it that, you know, I get a lot of emails, but I, I'm old, right? So I don't get that many texts, but that's kind of the way people are communicating. And if you're trying to sell wine today in the United States, you better communicate the way that your target audience is communicating. It's not an option. So anyway, uh, Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, I look forward to seeing you about and around, and I'm sure we will. Thank you, Steve. And. Uh, We'll be back next week with another edition of Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People on the Italian Wine Podcast. This is Steve Ray saying thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitali Academy, home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. Hi guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.